Dattree Leyland. My heroes have always been cowboys. I think I may have said that before. Granted, a lot of them were space cowboys. Han Solo, Lieutenant Starbuck, hell, even Buck Rogers had a little John Wayne to him. But the way of the traditional cowboy is the one that I responded to. Conquering a wild and unkempt frontier, following your own code whilst doing whatever you need to get by, being on just the right side of the law. I admit there's a certain amount of romanticism and myth-making when talking about the Old West, and I often find that I don't care about the reality. I like the fiction. I like Josie Wales, tall in the saddle, making his peace with the red man. I like the pale rider, noting that that's a fine piece of hickory, after clubbing the crap out of a selection of bad guys. I like the ineffably cool Yul Brynner and Steve McQueen in The Magnificent Seven, and Brynner are reprising that role to great effect in Westworld. I like smooth-talking conman Hannibal Hayes and his taciturn partner Kid Curry. I like the spiritual forebears Butch and Sundance, and I'm especially fond of John Wayne's last flick, The Shootist. But even as the Western died out, the myth continued to resonate. The themes of the Western, the taming of the land, the simple image of a man from nowhere coming in to save the day and leaving just as quickly as he had arrived, and the question of justice versus what's right, is an indelible part of American pop culture. And as we become more worldly wise, the yearning for a simple frontier tale becomes more enticing. As such, the iconography of the Western finds itself spilling over into more contemporary entertainment. Star Trek was essentially a Western, with Captain Kirk being the cowboy patrolling the last frontier, in this case space, and fixing problems before leaving for his next assignment. Justified as a modern-day cowboy, Raylan Givens, struggling to meet out frontier justice in a world obsessed with paperwork, and what was Knight Rider, if not an updated version of the Lone Ranger, but with a car instead of silver? The fascination with the Western has bled into other shows, many of which have done a Western episode, some better than others. It would be quite easy to just watch all 15 episodes of Firefly and its movie sequel, Serenity Here, and call my work done, but that would miss the point. Instead, here's a number of other television shows that aren't Westerns. They did Western episodes. First off, one that only did it tangentially and used the episode to explore the nature of heroism and hero worship through an iconic character. The Greatest American Heroes first season episode, My Heroes Have Always Been Cowboys, wasn't a genre-bending episode in the way many other shows that have tackled the Western were. Rather, it used the themes of the Western and its impact on popular culture through the lead character to analyse his own feelings and confront his own insecurities. Created by Stephen J. Cannell, The Greatest American Hero followed the exploits of English teacher Ralph Hinckley, played by William Catt, who one day is bequeathed a super suit by a bunch of aliens. Unfortunately, Ralph loses the instruction manual and thus finds he has to blunder through his use of the suit, normally succeeding more by dumb luck than skill or finesse, which adds a certain delicious irony to the title. He's teamed up, initially against his will, with FBI agent Bill Maxwell, played with glee by Robert Culp, who has a one-track mind when it comes to capturing bad guys. Maxwell regularly butts into Ralph's life, interrupting whatever Ralph may be doing with this week's case du jour, and Ralph generally has to juggle his secret identity and his responsibilities with Maxwell's overbearing and intrusive nature. As with a lot of Cannell's creations, character was emphasised over plot, and I think this is why his shows have aged so well. In this episode, Ralph starts questioning his worth when, on two separate occasions, he nearly causes more harm than good when out in the suit. In the first instance, a school bus skids to avoid Ralph and almost plunges off a cliff, whilst in the second instance, an old lady is almost crushed. 
This crisis of conscience coincides with an appearance at the local mall of the Lone Ranger, actor John Hart reprising his role from the 50s TV show, and Ralph explores his own feelings of heroism through his relationship to his childhood hero. Simultaneously, Bill is also undergoing his own feelings of hero worship when his mentor and captain from the Korean War, Tracy Walters, played by Canal regular Jack Gink, reveals that, fed up of working for a system that rewards criminals, whilst good cops like he and Bill live in crummy one-bedroom apartments, he's got to knock off a jewellery store. Maxwell, like Ralph, must undergo his own crisis of conscience regarding his hero and what it means to do the right thing. This scene from the middle of the show underscores these thematic elements very well. Oh, good morning. How you doing? Oh, pretty good. Got to get saddled up and do a show at 10.30. Hey, do you uh, always hang out at shopping center parking lots? <laughs> no, no, I'm a, I'm a high school teacher over here at Whitney. I was just down here to buy some stuff. They're having a sale at the... Well, that's kind of silly, but I wanted to see you again. Well, there's nothing silly about that. Everybody loves the Lone Ranger. Some thought he was on the side of the outlaw. Many knew him as a lone rider dealing out justice to the law-abiding citizenry. None knew where he came from and none knew where he went. Hey, you really are a fan. Oh, you bet. You bet I am. Only when I was a kid, it didn't sound so... Uh... So, uh, corny? Yeah. You see, I don't think it's corny. I think it's important. In the cold light, justice and morality always look corny, and you can't wave the flag and look cool, but like it or not, our society needs its heroes. Anybody on a mass tried dealing out justice today, they'd probably lock them up. Well, maybe, but I don't think that'd stop the Lone Ranger, do you? No. Probably not. Thanks a lot. Okay. Adios. Adios, Kim Wasabi. He casts a ten-foot shadow. He wears a three-foot smile. The ladies love his manners. The men admire his style. You'll know him when you see him. He's here and then he's gone. The living legend rides away alone. Heroes are human. No one sees that side. Sometimes they get lonely. realizes that doing the right thing may have consequences, but it's better than not doing anything. Bill realizes that he too has to do what's right, even if it means turning in an old friend. What's interesting in this is that Walters doesn't resent Maxwell for his decision, rather Maxwell himself is the one who takes it hard. The episode culminates with Ralph taking his class to see John Hart in an effort to get them to understand what it means to have heroes, but then, in a rather melancholic ending, both men go their separate ways. This is a fairly typical episode of the show. There's a bad guy for Ralph and Bill to bring down, there's some fun super stuff, some limited but adequate special effect, and some clashing of personalities between Bill and Ralph. Within the framework of US TV drama of the time, Cannell, who also wrote this episode, manages to balance character, action and humour well. There's a genuinely hilarious scene in the middle where Ralph as inept as ever at flying, keeps crashing into the aerials on the roofs, disrupting everybody's TV reception. 
By this point, eight episodes into the series, the actors are working well together, not just Kat and Cope, but also Connie Selica as Ralph's fiancée, Pam, who has her own relationship with Bill, which tends to be just as antagonistic as Ralph's. Cope does a great job of taking what could be a stereotyped and clichéd character and making him gruff but likeable. And the themes of the show are very Marvel comics in feel, with a lot of emphasis on Ralph's personal life and what having the suit is doing to it. Granted, all his kids look far too old to be in high school, but they aren't portrayed as the brightest stars in the sky, so it's possible they've just been held back. Quite a lot. Canel must be a major Lone Ranger fanboy, as this isn't the first time he'll reference the character in his work. In Rolling Thunder, the pilot episode for Hardcastle and McCormick, McCormick will peruse a number of Lone Ranger comic books situated in Hardcastle's office, and there'll be another canal reference to the Lone Ranger later in this show. This being an 80s TV show, there are some wonderful mistakes. The first four minutes don't even feature Cat, rather a stand-in in a bad wig, and there's a lot of footage reused throughout the episode. The Greatest American Hero as a series is a light-hearted romp with good characters and some genuinely funny moments, and this episode follows that template. In the hands of Glenn Larsner, Aaron Spelling, this would have been fluff, good for an hour or so, but instantly forgettable. Thankfully, Cannell has more integrity than that, and his emphasis on strong characterisation, colourful personalities and humour elevate the show. Cat and Culp are a fun team, and their adversarial relationship is one of the high points. The other Stephen J. Cannell show to delve into Western territory was his biggest hit, 80s action classic, The A-Team. A feature-length episode, When You're Coming Back, Range Rider, unlike the Greatest American Hero episode, was a proper Western. This time, the team are hired by Daniel Running Burr, played by Richard Nunigas, to stop Carter, played by Morgan Woodward, from stealing his horses and selling them as glue. It's a pretty standard A-team setup, but whereas the Greatest American Hero episode used the concept of the Lone Ranger to examine the role of heroism and role models in a person's life, this is just a romp. The Western elements are far more overt. Within the first five minutes, there's a horse rustling scene, a lassoing, and somebody dragged behind a jeep in lieu of a horse. And by the 30-minute mark, all the characters have adopted standard Western garb. Chaps, cowboy hats, and six-guns and the like. In a curious move, especially when compared to The Greatest American Hero, Howling Mad Murdoch's alter ego for this week is the Range Rider during Outlaw of the West, dispensing justice across the plains, rather than the Lone Ranger, who Range Rider is clearly based upon. Why Greatest American Hero is allowed to use the actual Lone Ranger, but the A-Team has to use an analogue, is one of those questions we may never know the answer to. The first half is pretty funny. As usual for the A-Team, the bad guys are utter scumbags. The A-Team didn't do Shades of Grey, and they are pretty ruthless to Running Burr before he manages to get in touch with our heroes and ask for help, immediately setting them up for the fall that will no doubt come their way. This is also the first appearance of A-Team mainstay Colonel Decker, played by Lance Legault. Colonel Lynch, who pursued the team through the first season, is written out, off-screen, naturally, and Decker will become the useless pursuer for the next two seasons, a thankless task that Legault actually managed to bring a small element of humour to. Cue a number of clips from other episodes which are worth mentioning, because this solidified in my young head that just because we were seeing these adventures on a weekly basis, it didn't mean that they were taking place on a weekly basis. The clips we see are explained as having taken place throughout the 70s, despite the show not starting until 1982, and this was an idea I liked a great deal. Anyway, with Decker on their trail, Hannibal rounds up the rest of the team and they head to Arizona to prevent horse rustlers from doing their nefarious deeds. The A-Team was pretty much a western anyway, so it wasn't much of a stretch to place an episode in that milieu and all the characters suit the cowboy hats and look comfortable on a horse. 
In addition to lassoing and horse riding, there are train robberies, those funny little train cart things you have to pump to keep moving, gunfights, saloons, flaming arrows and high comedy. Speaking of, it's face busting Murdoch out of the VA hospital. And so, the Range Rider defeats the Black Rock gang in another daring shootout. Once again, making the plane safe for all who dare brave the untamed West, no matter race nor creed, the Range Rider stands for truth and justice for all. All right. I must have been wrong. The Black Rock Gang has lured us into this cave. And then they've pushed a boulder in front of the opening. But there has to be another way out. How about right here through this window? Hey, uh, face, it's lucky you showed up with a flashlight. There's some kind of blackout throughout the building. Yeah, that's because B.A.'s jumping the master circuit, so the uh, alarm wouldn't go off when I opened the window. Murdoch, what are you wearing? I guess my secret's out. You discovered my alter ego. You're not Professor Nutty Buddy again, are you? Rex the Wonder Dog? No, 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 no. It's just that when you phoned earlier and said we were going up against some horse rustlers, well, who better to defeat them than the mysterious lawman of the plains, the range rider? You, uh, you got me there. Now, come on, Murdoch, come on. I told B.A. to turn on the juice in about ten minutes. Any longer than that, and uh, they'll start a room check. Nighty-night, Murdoch. Thunder, Thunder Girl. Oh, no, Thunder's not who I think she is. Ho, 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 girl, ho. I don't know, Murdoch. You know how B.A. feels about having Billy in his van, and uh, he's just a dog. The Range Rider would sooner face a dozen bandits without his six shooters than not have Thunder at his side. There is no man tall enough to come between me and my trusty steed. Come, girl. Hey, sucker. You better not be talking to invisible animals. Here we go again. Come on. One of the things I never understood about the A-Team was adults criticising the show for being unrealistic when it seemed to me that kids thoroughly understand that it's a live-action Bugs Bunny cartoon. Although sometimes kids can be the smartest critics. In that respect, When You're Coming Back, Range Rider is everything you probably remember about watching The A-Team, if you ever did. And if you didn't, it's probably everything you remember about what the show should be, based on what you've heard. The Western elements are blended into the show magnificently to the point where this never feels like a stunt, even though it clearly is. Cannell was a genuinely funny writer, as was most of his staff, which included A-Team co-creator Frank Lupo. Lupo worked on a number of Cannell's shows and was more than capable of delivering fast-paced action and OTT characters, making this episode a ball to watch. It manages to evoke the Western while still being an episode of the A-Team. It's thoroughly entertaining and often quite funny. Dwight Schultz never received the plaudits he deserved for his portrayal of Murdoch in this series, but he nails every single comedy set piece, be it visual gags, normally at the expense of Mystic T, to the moments where he talks to his invisible horse, and he has exquisite line delivery. Murdoch, and by extension Schultz, was frequently the standout character in the show. Likewise, Dirk Benedict manages to be charming and funny, especially in the scene at the beginning, where Face has managed to purchase a student film, dub it into Spanish, then dub it back into English, and claim that it's a foreign art film that has had huge box office overseas. Hannibal is impressed by Face's ability to make this into a huge premiere. However, it's landed his rather infamous mug on the cover of Variety, and Colonel Decker is on his way. Another thing no one ever gives the show credit for is the chemistry between the leads, this despite Mr. T and George Peppard barely speaking to each other. 
Hannibal and Face steal a Trans Am, surely a nod to Knight Rider, and elude Decker, who'd better get used to this. He'll spend the better half of the next two years sucking at his job. Clearly this is one of the best Western episodes of a show that isn't a Western, even though the A-Team was almost a Western. But you get what I'm saying. It works as both an 80s action show and a homage, and was one of those episodes of the show that was repeated a great deal when I was a kid. Being a feature-length movie, ITV would use it as a Saturday evening TV flick quite regularly. I would also give a nod to the pilot episode of the A-Team, which is basically a remake of The Magnificent Seven. Gunmen of the Apocalypse is the third episode of the sixth season of the long-running BBC sci-fi comedy Red Dwarf. For this season, the crew, Last Man Alive Dave Lister, Hologram Arnold Rimmer, the android Crichton and the lifeform that evolved from Lister's cat, are trapped aboard Starbug and following Red Dwarf, which they've lost. This episode sees the crew enter a computer simulation being run by Crichton's brain to rid Starbug of a computer virus that has infiltrated the systems. It's really just an excuse for the show to do a western, which it does adequately. It's never really convincing. The location they use looks like a dirty farm rather than a genuine western town. But one can put this down to Crichton not being overly familiar with the western iconography beyond what he knows from movies. Ultimately, for a comedy, all that matters is, is it funny? And this episode raises a few titters. I have to confess, I never thought Red Dwarf was as hysterical as a lot of my friends did. And therefore, this episode just seems more of the same. If Red Dwarf is rule on the floor funny to you, you'll enjoy this episode. If not, it's alright. As far as Red Dwarf itself is concerned, I don't think the series was ever as good as the novel Infinity Welcomes Careful Drivers, which was written by the same team of Rob Grant and Doug Naylor, even though the book came after the series. I'm more likely to recommend that novel than I am the show. For some reason, science fiction shows always want to do Western episodes. Perhaps it's due to the slight similarity of format, Conquering the Frontier, that lends itself to shamelessly ripping off Western movies. There are also quick and dirty shows to write when the dreaded deadline dooms, and there's a lot of Western sets just hanging around Universal and Paramount backlots. Such was the case with Battlestar Galactica. Originally rushed into production to cash in on the success of Star Wars in late 1977 for transmission as a series of telemovies in early 1978, the network, ABC, was so emboldened by what they were seeing, they changed the order, upgrading Galactica to a weekly series. This left the production crew scrabbling for hour-long episodes to make quickly and cheaply. They could cut a number of the telemovies plots into two-part episodes, which they dutifully did, but they also needed extra hour-long scripts to fill the airtime. The tried and true method of US TV shows to fill out their quota is to mine films for script ideas and then do cheaper versions of them for their own shows. The Incredible Hulk ripped off no less than three films for its first season, Rocky, Earthquake and Airplane 77, and Quantum Leap would also do Rocky, as well as Driving Miss Daisy and a couple of film noirs. Now you'd think Galactica with its science fiction milieu wouldn't be able to do this, but you'd be mistaken. Most of the early single episode shows were all rip-offs of old western ideas. The Magnificent Warriors, as you may guess from the title, was a rip-off of The Magnificent Seven. The Young Lords was a mixture of Colditz and the Dirty Dozen. Even the two-part episodes got in on the act, with the gun on Ice Planet Zero being a mixture of Ice Station Zebra, the guns of Navarone, and, just for good measure, because they haven't already ripped it off, more Dirty Dozen. Even The Living Legend, one of Galactica's most acclaimed episodes, was inspired by Patton. This episode, The Lost Warrior, written by Don Belisario, is inspired by both Shane and a little-known Jimmy Stewart Western, Destry Rides Again. Here's the trailer. You can't probe through to Galactica. I am under attack. 
Well, then we're going to have to hide it. He has a right to know. No! I will not have Puppis going after the thing that killed his father. Spending the rest of his life as a warrior? Boxy's lost one parent. He's not going to lose two. You don't scare me. Apollo, please do something. They'll kill him. Booty's told me about your gun. Your gun is the only chance we have. The plot, as you may have guessed, is Captain Apollo, Richard Hatch, forced to land on the planet Equellus. For reasons never adequately explained, there's a colony of humans on the planet who are aware of the colonial warriors, and in fact, had a warrior amongst them for a while. But not only have the colonies completely forgot about them, the Cylons also have no knowledge of these humans living right under their noses. Apollo learns that the villain, a boss hog wannabe replete in white suit, has a Cylon acting as his personal guard, who has also crashed here. After spending 40 minutes preaching non-violence, Apollo finally straps the blaster on and blows the Cylon away, bringing an end to boss hog's tyranny. The Lost Warrior is not a bad episode at all. In fact, if you've had a fair amount to drink, there's a lot of fun to be had. As with all 70s, 80s TV shows, it's fun playing Spot the Guest Star. Lance Legault crops up again, and Red West and Claude Earl Jones also have guest star honours. Series star Richard Hatch does a decent job of carrying the show on his own. However, the Western iconography is laid on so thickly in this episode, it results in guffaws from the audience. Well, in this case, me. The horses are all covered in silver armour as if to hide their horses. The townsfolk all wear silver cowboy hats because, you know, space. And the saloon even has those swing doors, albeit also covered silver. When Apollo finally confronts Cylon, wonderfully named Red Eye, the music slips into a pastiche of the good, the bad and the ugly. And the final confrontation is shot to deliberately mirror a high noon style showdown. In most other respects, when a TV show does a Western episode, they try to provide some explanation for why this is a Western. When Star Trek did Spectre of the Gun, for example, the aliens took the Western model from Kirk's mind. Here, no such explanation is given for these similarities, which kind of adds up to Galactica's lacklustre approach to its own backstory. It frequently took elements of Greek, Egyptian and American mythology, chucked in some spacey names, like in this episode, where everyone is named after a constellation, but it never really solidified what it all meant, creating a mishmash that didn't really hang together. And that sums up this episode. It's a mishmash that doesn't really hang together, but it's fun in its own way, although it does not hold up to any thought whatsoever. If the colonial warrior character who lived here and married the woman Apollo meets, and father the child who discovers Apollo's crashed viper, so he can't have been much older than Apollo, why does Apollo have no idea this colony of colonials exists? Even if we excuse Apollo's ignorance, when Adama is checking the nearby planets Apollo could have crash-landed on, it's implied they are still within their charted space. So why does he not know of a colony of colonials? And is he not bothered about leaving them there? What if the Cylons find them? The woman Apollo encounters doesn't want Apollo here at all, which she makes very clear from the get-go, but she has fuel from her husband's viper throughout the entire episode, yet only gives it him at the end. Of course, all of these questions can be answered by simply pointing out that if they were addressed, the episode would be over in about 20 minutes, so we have to drag it out a bit to make the 45-minute running time. There are also far too many cute kids in this episode for it to be truly palatable. Still, there are enjoyable moments, as I say. Claude L. Jones is great as the bad guy, and the Cylon pausing to say, uh-oh, when he sees Apollo's colonial blaster is funny, and one could get drunk quite easily if we made a drinking game of taking a slug whenever there's some stock footage. Ultimately, though, this meets the criteria admirably. It's very definitely a Western episode of a non-Western show. 
Doctor Who, by contrast to Galactica, is almost quintessentially British in its influence and attitude, and as such has really attempted the Western. In 1966, as Star Trek would do later, it mined the Wyatt Earp legend to produce The Gunfighters, a four-part adventure starring William Hartnell as the Doctor. Taking its cue from Gunfight at the OK Corral, it suffered from not having the budget nor location photography to successfully emulate the Western genre. However, by the time we reach Matt Smith's time as the Doctor, the budget and popularity of the show can not only afford to do location filming, it can afford to film abroad. The third episode of the seventh relaunched season, A Town Called Mercy, was lensed in Spain and written by Toby Whitehouse. Here's the trailer. I'm the Doctor. This is no need to stand. Don't worry! Everything is completely under control! Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. The gunslinger is a cyborg. Half man, half machine. You're really letting him do this? Save us all? Yeah, I really am. Everyone who isn't an American, drop your gun. As with all Western-flavoured shows I've covered so far, it follows the same template of man wanders into town and beats the enemy before leaving, but this being Doctor Who, there's a twist. The Doctor and his companions, Amy and Rory Pond, arrive in a small western town called Mercy, where they discover the town is cut off from the rest of the country via a force field. In short order, they discover that the town has electricity ten years before that should be, and this is due to the town Doctor. This man turns out to be an alien who crashed and was saved by the population of Mercy. In return, he has helped the town. They are now being held in thrall by a cybernetic gunslinger who threatens to kill anyone who leaves town until the alien doctor, Dr. Carla Jex, is turned over to him. When it turns out that the gunslinger is a product of Jex's wartime experiments, the doctor is forced to confront his own morality. As with all truly great science fiction, the backdrop isn't what the episode is really about. Despite being set in the New Frontier and having guest star Ben Browder point out that America is the land of second chances, what we are given here is a morality fable about a scientist who has done heinous things in the cause of peace and a former man-turned-cyborg who's killed millions against his own will. Neither man is portrayed as right, neither man is portrayed as wrong, and the Doctor's knee-jerk reaction to hand Jex over to the gunslinger and be done with it is clearly shown to be spurious. Ultimately, the episode asks an age-old question. Will we ultimately join together as a species and reject violence and revenge in favour of justice and civility? Or will we allow ourselves to continue down the path of least resistance and refuse to grow? James F. McGrath on the religious website Pathios even stated it to be a clear moral choice that the episode presents us with. The teaching of people to value lives consistently on a day-to-day basis. That this much can be read into a standard episode of the series show what a remarkable series Doctor Who has developed into. Even if we ignore the underpinning themes of the episode, it has some great location photography and witty dialogue to keep it going along. Smith and co-stars Arthur Darville and Karen Gillan were really hitting their strides by this point, and they bounce off each other remarkably well, with it being Gillan's character Amy who is the conscience. Ben Browder is also good value in the episode, and one wishes he'd got more of a chance to diversify in his career after Farscape, as he really is an underrated and compelling actor. 
The western setting is milked for all it's worth, with horseback riding, showdowns and tumbleweeds, and it's a great example of Doctor Who at its finest, even if it's not the finest episode of Doctor Who. Speaking of not the finest episodes, The Last Gunfighter is a pretty standard but no less enjoyable episode of Quantum Leap from that show's fourth season. Dr. Sam Beckett, the always dependable Scott Bakula, leaps into Tyler Means in 1957. Tyler has been living a lie for years, dining off his reputation as the town's saviour, having allegedly taken out a gang of desperados, threatening the town single-handedly. When his old partner, Pat Knight, arrives in town claiming Tyler is a liar, Sam must prevent Tyler being killed in a high noon shootout over a matter of pride. Here's the leap. You killed my three brothers, Tyler. That just leaves you... And this town ain't big enough for the two of us. As usual for Quantum Leap, the episode is about honour and pride rather than being a particular Western send-up. In fact, within the show itself, the Western element is fake, with Tyler being the showman of a Western tourist attraction, giving the writers the opportunity to explore themes of long-held grudges and the necessity of letting things go in the name of peace. It shows a fair bit in common with the Doctor Who episode in that regard. It's first to say, though, that this isn't prime quantum leap. Bacula and Dean Stockwell as Al are as engaging and watchable as ever, but this is no different to any number of other episodes, with the supporting characters not really making much of an impression. As such, this one rests on Bacula's shoulders, and as good a job as he does, there's not enough here to engage the audience completely. It whiles away the 45 minutes pleasantly enough, and there are some nice directorial shots paying homage to the westerns, but it's not particularly memorable. The Star Trek shows did a number of Western rip-offs from the original series episode Spectre of the Gun to a number of Deep Space Nine episodes that were inspired by films such as The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance and High Noon. None were quite more obvious, however, than A Fistful of Datas, the eighth episode of season six of The Next Generation. Here's a trailer. Data's memory malfunction turns a Wild West fantasy into a real live shootout. You've been shot. Now, with only primitive defenses, can Worf stop a gang of murderous outlaws? Where have they taken my son? And with no escape, can he survive a violent showdown? There's a gunfighter out there who has the speed and accuracy of an android. On Star Trek The Next Generation. A Fistful of Datas, originally called The Good, The Bad and The Klingon, is an out-and-out farce, which is no bad thing. The next generation could frequently be very po-faced compared to the original, a trait that would carry over into Voyager and Enterprise, as if the producers were deathly afraid of having any fun. This episode sees the cast allowed to let their hair down for a bit, even if it's yet another holiday gone wrong plot. When Data and LaForge are conducting an experiment, a malfunction sees Data's personality implanted into the ship's computers, including a holodeck recreation of the Old West, where Worf, Worf's son, Alexander, and Deanna Troy are playing. However, the malfunction has disengaged the holodeck safeties, and I reckon Worf and co. could find themselves in a real pickle if Data can't fix the problem right soon. First off, this episode is dumber than dirt. I've never understood why the holodeck has safeties that can be overrode. How does that make any sense? How on earth did that ever get past Starfleet's health and safety division? Secondly, Data's malfunction causes him to be all over the holodeck and then have him speaking Western cliches out of the holodeck, which is very silly. But you know what? 
doesn't really matter. The episodes are hoot. The Next Generation never seemed to do comedy as well as the original, despite having a number of gifted comedic actors in the cast. But here the comedy works admirably, and even the normally staid Captain Picard gets in on the action, in an opening scene where he's just trying to have a bit of alone time and everyone keeps interrupting. Michael Dorn manages to milk Worf's literal and stick-in-the-mud personality for humour as well, and Brent Spiner once again gets to chew the scenery with aplomb, playing multiple holodeck roles, including a woman. There are numerous nods to Western clichés, thanks to director Patrick Stewart, who, by all accounts, watched a different Western every night of the week that he filmed this episode, and even Marina Sirtis gets to have fun in the stranger role, allowing herself to adopt a truly terrible American accent, have some fun at Worf's expense, and look spectacularly good in a pair of tight red leather pants. She's never been hotter than she is in this segment, as some of the tighter stuff they used to put her in in the show proper ended up being quite unflattering. Here, with the bad perm tucked away under a cowboy hat and the tight pants complementing her curves, she cuts quite a figure. Unlike most treks, there doesn't seem to be any kind of message or social subtext here. It's just fun. And it has exactly the same plot as the Red Dwarf episode. Speaking of fun, Castle, as mentioned a few episodes ago, liked its genre bending and therefore it comes as no surprise that they too have done a Western episode. Once Upon a Time in the West, from Castle's seventh season, sees our two lovebirds, Castle and Beckett, investigate a murder in New York by posing as newlyweds at a Wild West resort in Arizona. There doesn't seem to be any jurisdiction limits to where Beckett can investigate her cases. And so far, this is Castle. But this turns into a glorious celebration of westerns and probably the most effective handling of the topic on the list. Castle, always little more than a man-child anyway, exhibits the glee and excitement I know that I would in such a situation. And when it all turns out to be in search of gold, there's more to get excited about. It's not as good a mystery as Castle usually is. Essentially this is, like many other episodes on the list, a romp. But it's a fun one. There are a couple of geek-friendly references, although, unless I missed it, there isn't a single Firefly gag in the entire show, which seems odd given the Nathan Fillion connection. One such reference is the name of the Wild West town, which is Diamondback. When Beckett asks Castle to run off whatever he thinks of when that name comes up, he mentions the Marvel Comics villain of the same name. In addition, Keith Zarabajka from The Equalizer and Angel shows up in this episode as the proprietor of the ranch, and it's always nice to see Mickey Cosmeyer. As with Marina Sirtis before her sterner catic has never looked better than the last half of this episode where she is dressed all in black with a corset and leather pants on. It's an atypical castle, not really representative of the show, but most western episodes like this are atypical and normally a reason to let the her down and simply have fun. Now, I know what you're thinking, and you're right. How can you do a western episode without mentioning Firefly? Well, Firefly is a western so it doesn't really count. Maybe next time. Speaking of next time, let's delve into the email sack and pluck out a message from Mr. Trey Hooks, who wants to talk about the Star Trek movies that we did uh, with uh, Paul and Sean. That was a good episode. That seems to have gone down well. Um, Hello, Andrew, says Trey. I was really glad to hear the search for Spock get some much well-deserved recognition. I think that may be my favourite Star Trek movie. I know Wrath of Khan gets well-deserved praise, but I feel like Kirk is kept too separate from the crew in that film. My order probably runs 3, 6, 2, 5, First Contact, Generations 1, Insurrection 4, and finally Nemesis. I like 5 quite a bit, and whilst the comedy is somewhat camp, it isn't as bad or as preachy as The Voyage Home. 
I give the Next Generation films such a low ranking because while most of them were like the show but in the movies, like you all said, at the time I felt that there was better Trek for free on television. I also thought they suffered structurally from trying to give everyone a story beat instead of focusing on a few of the ensemble and letting the others fade into the background for a film. Anyhow, I very much enjoyed it, like I do pretty much all your episodes. My only gripe is you recommended so many good shows I have trouble listening to it all. Trey Hooks, a.k.a. Gotham Kid, writer of stories from the Spinnerack, spinnerack.blogspot.com. But you're very, very welcome, Trey. Glad you enjoyed that Star Trek episode. It does seem to have gone down well. We've not really had anyone email in saying you're wrong, all the uh, odd-numbered ones are crap. Because I like to think we did a good job of showing that they're not. Well, most of them. Chris Franklin's emailed in. Hello, Andy. Um, it's, it is sci-fi, kind of, is his subject heading, and he's mentioned that he's talked to Dukes of Hazard. I, yeah, I did a Dukes of Hazard in that one, didn't I? God, brain fart. Completely forgot that I did that. Uh, Chris continues, I'd forgotten all about that show, but your synopsis jog loose some dusty memories. I still catch an occasional Dukes rerun, but I haven't seen this one in years. I really need to get those DVD sets. I do recall the Magnum episode, though. My mum was a huge Magnum fan. That was one of her favourites. I think partially because her favourite film was somewhere in time. Am I crazy or was there a shot of Rick from this episode used in the opening credits? Oh, I don't know. I think the, sh- the shot that you're thinking of is the one where Rick's got his back to us and he turns around and he's putting um, a rose in his lapel, which may be from the pilot episode rather than this particular episode. Because I don't recall Rick being in this one a lot. But, you know, I think it's more likely it's from the pilot. Uh, Chris concludes with I'm stoked for doppelgangers I'm guessing Spider-Man's Night of the Clones will get some love well I did Night of the Clones we did a Hey Kids comics Michael and I about uh, Night of the Clones back when we did um, Couch Potato it was called I know it's going back about three and a half years but it's out there so you can if if you're interested go and check that out uh, thank you, Chris. Thanks for emailing in. Jason Trenner's next. Greetings, says Jason. I have rather enjoyed the episode covering sci-fi in non-science fiction shows, and your coverage of the V novel leads me to ask if you've considered reading the Doctor Who novel, The Indestructible Man, as it's basically the second Doctor encountering Captain Scarlet and the Mysterons and UFO. Well, I haven't, Jason, but that sounds far too intriguing for me to not do that, so... Certainly one worth looking into. Thank you, Jason, for emailing. Ron Sadowski's emailed in, who is forever a friend, for giving me an Erwolf. It's my Erwolf impression. And uh, I have come to the realisation that it takes me about as long to write an email as it does for you to do an episode. So here is all the stuff I have been meaning to say. Episode 4, you made the novelisation of Revenge of the Sith sound so much better than the film. I went and got it on MP3 last summer. I still haven't listened to it, but I will, one day. Episode 5, Star Trek, the original series. So many good choices, and you make well-reasoned arguments. I could disagree with you for hours. <laughs> well, tell you what, if we're ever in the same neck of the woods, I'll buy you a beer. And we can disagree about Star Trek episodes. Maybe I should come and do a dinner for geeks with you, that could be fun. Episode 6, Magoo's 7 core prisoner episodes. Just remind us why the artist may not be the best to define his art. Very true. Episode 7, I've never seen an episode of Alias Smith and Jones, but your fondness of it was touching. Episode 8, Attack of the Clones. Yeah, whatever. Episode 9, oh my god, I actually sat through someone watching a movie and talking about it. Good thing your wife was there to make it interesting. Are you saying I didn't make it interesting? Is that what you're saying? And really, no knowledge of Rick Springfield? Why is this a shock to everybody that I don't know a teeny bopper pop star from the 70s? 
He was big twice, I'm sure he was. Early 70s, he was the next big pop star out of Australia after the Bee Gees. You've heard of them, right? I'm pretty sure the Bee Gees are British. And early 80s on the soap General Hospital and a top 10 pop star. Doesn't mean I've heard of him. I know he was in an episode of The Hulk with, uh, with Gerald McCraney. I remember that. Episode 10, yay, I got Andrew to do the opening lines of the novel. Boo, he didn't do the Martian voice from the musical. Episode 11 and 12, Quantum Leap was a show I watched from pilot to around third season. Not that the show got bad, but my life got complicated as I moved to go off to college. I came back to watch the fifth season with the whole Oswald build-up, the evil Leaper and the finale, but it just didn't feel the same. I also worry that because you spent two episodes of this one show, all the other time-travelling shows will be slighted. Oh, have no fear. I'm sure we'll do time-travel again at some point. Episode 13. Awesome! Maybe when the season is over, you two can review it in a whole. Uh, yeah. I would like to bring Michael back to discuss all of Constantine, but pinning him down is quite difficult. You know, such an amazing social life. Episode 14. Wow, Buck Rogers. Really? Let's move on. Episode 15, Glenn Larson was a big man on TV and he got the send-off he deserved thanks to the palace. Oh, cheers, Ron. I appreciate that. I enjoyed doing the Glenn Larson episode. Episode 16, the most notable exception from your list was Tattinger, a brilliant hour-long drama that got reworked into a 30-minute sitcom called Nick and Hillary. Not that anyone but me could. Episode 17, you didn't re-watch V the series or read the comic book and you call yourself a fan? I tried to watch the TV show, I really did, but by golly, it became hard work. It really, really did become a slog, and I couldn't be bothered. Sorry. The comic, I think I read a couple of issues of the comic back in the day, but I don't have any, so that's why I didn't cover it in the show. 18. More retrospectives on classic sci-fi would be a good thing, and The Bringers of Wonder, in my opinion, is the best Space 1999 ever got. Episode 19, only the cool kids watch Starsky and Hutch, and I was never a cool kid. Talk about Switch and I'm there with you. Uh, I don't know what Switch is. More retrospectives of classic sci-fi are forthcoming. I have considered doing more like The Bringers of Wonder and just looking at an episode of a show, because that's much easier than trying to cover an entire season. It's finding the time to watch it when you do stuff like that. Episode 20, TV themes are fine, but really what we need is more shows whose opening music explains what the show is about. Well, like the Beverly Hillbillies. That's a top telly tunes I want to hear. <laughs> Episode 21. Not being a Trekkie, I still collected and enjoyed DC's first Star Trek series and those annuals. You and Chris did a great job. Well, thank you very much. Episode 2022. 2022? Is that a year? In the year 2022? Episode 22. Mine, mine, mine. The best, even what you're producing, is Hackney, Hackney, Hackney. I don't remember what episode 22 was. I'd have to go back and have a look. Episode 23, a few years back, I found Dirty Harry on DVD for $10 at Target that had the first four films. I then made my son, who was 17 at the time, watch the first two as payback for making me watch Paint Your Wagon. <laughs> Paint Your Wagon's not that bad. He chose for us to watch the other two. I can't disagree with anything you say, but as a follow-up, it would be interesting to have you look at the non-Harry Cop films Eastwood did. The Gauntlet, Tightrope and The Rookie. That is actually a very good idea. I very much want to cover some more Clint stuff, but it's probably, but I, I focused on the westerns. I de- definitely want to do Outlaw Josie Wales. And I think that uh, Chris Franklin would like to come on and talk about that. Maybe Paul Spataro as well, that may be fun. But I'd not considered doing his non-Harry Cop movies, but it's a very good idea actually. 
Maybe we should do The Beguiled. That was a good film. Episode 24, another commentary. Where is the lovely Mrs. Leyland to keep us entertained? Uh, she was not here for that one, I'm afraid. Number 25, I agree that odd numbers are not universally bad. Three is a good mover, and as an apologist for five, it was enjoyable, despite being too broad and ten years too late. As for any of the ones with the next-gen cast, I have no use for them. Episode 26, did you say it had to be drama? Because I can think of all sorts of sitcoms that used a sci-fi trope for a plot line. For a plot line. Maybe that could be the follow-up. Gilligan's Island's body-swapping episode. Do you know, I've never seen so much as a single episode of Gilligan's Island. Never seen it. Do apologise. If I'd include if I'd included sitcoms, the list probably would have been much longer, because it seems like sitcoms have ripped off sci-fi badly quite a lot. I mean, who remembers Holmes and Yo-Yo? And uh, was it My Mother the Car? And Small Wonder? And My Secret Identity? Was My Secret Identity a sitcom? I don't know. It may have been. Episode 27, to take Captain Kirk out of the running, is so sad. He could do his own top five evil twins by himself. Outside of that, you really did go for the odd ones, didn't you? I, that was deliberate. I mean, I, you could have done an episode, as you say, um, about the Star Trek um, Evil Twin episodes. And, you know, it's a good idea. I may do it one day. But for this one, I wanted I would much rather expose people to the $6 million man, because the $7 million man's a great episode. And any time I can shoehorn a reference to car in a show, the night automated roving robot, you know, down with that. Maybe I should have done Kit versus Car as well as Trust Doesn't Rust, because that's a classic. Maybe Charlie Niemeyer and me should do an episode about that. That would be fun. In other thoughts, Rifen and I got into a discussion of translating British shows into American ones. Till Death Tools Part, All in the Families, Steptoe and Son, Samford and Son, Faulty Towers, Amanda's Place. And I felt this would be a good topic for your discerning eye. Yeah, it's a lot more research, but if you need help, I'm sure we can help out. See, the problem with that is I never saw All in the Family or Samford and Son or Amanda's Place. I don't think they got showed over here. Because we stopped showing the American Who's the Boss when we started doing our own version of it. So, I don't know why we did our own version of it. Um, So, it'd be hard work simply because I don't think I've ever seen them. Also, I just finished listening to your appearance on Back to the Bins, episode 106, and the near-breakout discussion about the talents of Greg Evigan. The palace should take up this task. (laughs) Greg Evigan. (laughs) From his first appearance in the Bionic Boy episode of The Six Million Dollar Man. God, yeah, he was. He was in The Bionic Boy. Through BJ to Joey Harris to Jack Cardigan, my two dads. On Tech War, Jack Cardigan's Tech War, isn't he? Evergan has a tale that must be told with a British accent. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> isn't his daughter an actress now? It's Brianna Evergan, isn't, isn't that his daughter? Till next time, it's been a year since I emailed you. Ron Sadowski, Dinner for Geeks. Well, I do appreciate you emailing in again, even if it took a year, because that was, that was fun. I enjoyed that. Uh, hey kids comics at virginmedia.com if you want to email me I'm still using the other show's email address because you know why not and I hope you enjoyed this because I had a lot of fun with it and uh, I'll see you next time bye bye